to a discussion. We got off into a discussion. So we'll start over from the beginning of the paragraph so that we should be able to appreciate the, the continuity that of the, of the concept that Rav Chaim Litzata is trying to develop. Essentially what Rav Chaim Litzata said as we began explaining last week, Rav Chaim Litzata, by, for the sake of a comparison, um, clarified for us five philosophies that one way or the other carried a lot of weight and were accepted by different groups of people or different nations of people throughout time. <coughs> and these five philosophies were all philosophies that if one thinks about them more clearly and more deeply, one realizes that each and every one of those four five philosophies is in direct contradiction to the Hashem Echad, to the God is one that the Jew believes. And the five philosophies, just to go through them very quickly, is that philosophy number one, that God gave over the world to other forces and we must worship the forces in, in respect to God because God has other things to do than to communicate with us or to listen to our communications. The second of the uh, five false philosophies was that that if God is the epitome or personifies the ultimate good, every single force in this world has its equal opposite and there must be a source for all of the evil of the world which is a different source than that of God himself. The third philosophy is that everything is completely up to nature which means either that I channel the energies of nature or don't, or that I'm born in the right star or I'm born in the wrong star, but everything that I receive, I receive through my ability to relate properly or improperly to the forces of nature. There is no justice, there is no relationship of cause and effect and God's response to what we do right or wrong within nature, but nature is a totally independent entity which I can utilize or misuse for my benefit or disbenefit. The fourth philosophy being that that once God chose the free will, reward punishment system for the world, God is trapped in that system. And even if he would like to leave the system because the system's not working for the nation that he's chosen, he can't. And he's stuck, and the best that he can do is he can choose another nation, but once he establishes one of the laws of nature, one of the conducts of nature, that being free will and reward and punishment in its wake, there is no way out. And if we do wrong, so we don't deserve to be, quote-unquote, chosen anymore, we're not chosen anymore, God goes elsewhere. And the fifth, the fifth of the five uh, false philosophies that Rav Chaim Latzata talks about is an extreme one, the one that some people believe that they can actually fight against God, that they are, they appear with God, they can fight against God, they can utilize that which God himself created to fight against him. This is not very rational, but it comes out of a rebellious and very spiteful kind of an individual. But there was this kind of philosophy also, we have it in the Chumash, and unfortunately we have it all through our history. Within, within the Jewish ranks, there were all kinds of situations of this nature. So these were five false philosophies and Rav Chaim Litzata pointed out that virtually all of them are inconsistent with the concept of God's oneness. They're totally inconsistent. The idea of God being one means 
that 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 is the uh, the only essential existence, and there is nothing else that can be worshipped or anything else that one would direct his prayers to. God is totally involved in everything that happens in the world, and we are not left up to the laws of nature and how well or how poorly we do with the laws of nature. God is, says himself that he is responsible for virtually everything that exists in this world, which means even the creation of evil, whatever that means, which is a very dramatic statement, that God says, I made it all, including evil. There is no second God. And then going on to the fourth and fifth philosophy, the philosophy that <clears throat> that God is becomes trapped within a conduct that he himself establishes, this is contrary to our belief in a one God, because our belief in a one God says that God does not have anything that stands in his way. If he does, then there's something else that's with him that can hold him back. So he's not one anymore. He's not one. He's not singular. He's not unique. There's something else that can hold him back. And, fi- and, uh, and to finally, in terms of the fifth philosophy, that you can take that which God himself made and fight against God is utter nonsense. Because that itself is saying, again, that we have the ability to fight against God, which means that we're equals with God. We can prevent God from doing something or hold back or, or limit something that God's doing against his particular will at that moment. And that's also inconsistent with the philosophy of God's oneness. And last week, I think it would be very worthwhile if you weren't here, or if you still feel that it's not uh, this this whole thing is not relevant to our lives. It seems to be very abstract, and we don't suffer from this. If you listen to last week's tape, you'll see that there are dramatic ramifications. How we all buy into segments of all of these five philosophies, and how life is a struggle to elevate ourselves not to swallow any of them and to live in a pure state of God's oneness. And this is essentially what Rav Meshachayim Latzat has done up to this point. Now let's start the paragraph again. But the person that understands what it means when we say that God is one, he is required to believe that God is in fact one he is unique and there is nobody that comes anywhere close to him in any of his abilities or functions. And therefore, ain lo moneo umaakev. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm starting from a different point. Where are we? I'm sorry. Okay, I, I, I got the wrong Va'amnam. This is what we are required to believe in, in, in our system of belief. But the clarification of this particular belief, this is something which is going to become revealed and is going to become clearer and clearer from everything that happens in this world. In other words, what is Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat saying? Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying that our task in understanding this oneness is a life's mission. And everything that happens in the world around us, to us as individuals and in the universe as a whole, is for the ultimate purpose of crystallizing these concepts of God's oneness. Mikol Habrias, all of that which Hashem created will say a message in regards to that oneness, and all of the promises are all intended to lead in one specific direction. What is the specific direction that they're leading in? 
all of the all of the promises all of the promises are are detailing how that oneness is ultimately going to become clear. So we pointed out last week that Rav Moshe, what's the problem? Okay, so we pointed out last week that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata says that this concept of God's oneness becomes clarified, okay, through a number of things. Mikol Abrias, right, from everything in creation. That's number one. Mikol Amasim, from all of the acts, from all of the circumstances, from all of the occurrences of history. Mikol Haftachas, and from all of the promises. As we've explained before, He's referring to the script, all of the verses that he brought where the prophets say that the, 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 the tremendous fortune of the end of days is the clarification of this fact that God is one. Benimtza, and it comes out, Shigili Yehuda, Zehu Masharatza by and Ha'elyain. So what can we say as a final result? As a final result of our whole discussion, what we can say is the following, that if we were asked the question, Okay, we've been talking about the fact that God created the world and God created the world with a specific goal. There was a goal orientation in the creation of the world and God has determined that the world should reach that goal. You remember we spoke about that? There was a goal for the world. And when he created the world, there was a purpose for it. Obviously, what we've learned up to this point is that the purpose of the creation of the world is to do good with people, that people should be the recipients of God's ultimate good. But the world has a, a goal. I mean, what is the ultimate goal? What is the, every person going to reach in order that they will have this happiness and they'll, they'll have this fulfillment? So what was the formula that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata said? The goal of the world is that people should be the recipients of God's ultimate good. What, is, what does it mean to be the ultimate recipient of God's good? Let's go through the whole sequence. What does it mean to be the ultimate recipient of God's good? It means to have a deep relationship with God. A deep relationship with God means knowing God. That's the only way that you can have a relationship with Him. What is it that we have to know about God? His oneness. Right? So let's just put the whole picture, let's, the, the, the last what, however 30, 40 pages that we learned, let's put the whole thing together. God created the world so that we should be recipients of the ultimate good. The ultimate good is that we should emulate God and have a relationship with God. That requires knowing God. What is it about God that we should know about Him, that we should have this relationship with Him, and then be the ultimate recipients of His good by that knowledge and by that relationship? It's His oneness. This is how Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is putting this whole thing together. Now, what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is going to do, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is going to do something which is very fascinating. We're really running on two tracks. We're re- really running on two tracks. Because ideally, if one would look at the, the whole, everything that we learned up to this point very superficially, one could have said... One could have said that the ultimate goal of man is to be thrust into situations of choice and to grow through choices, right? Now, we, and we didn't necessarily have to be terribly particular about what identifying any one specific goal. God wants us to develop through our own struggles because if we develop through our own struggles, that's the ultimate good. So God gives us a list of struggles. He throws us into the world, and the things are very unclear. We have to have Bechira, okay, in order to struggle, and by struggling and growing, 
So we are developing through that, and that's the ultimate good. Right? That was the track that we were on up till a couple of pages ago. All of a sudden, Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is introducing a new track. There is a goal for the world. And what's that goal? Not just that people should be developed through their choices, but the goal of the world is God's oneness. Now, it's very nice, but why couldn't we just say that God's goal for the world was that we should be the ultimate recipients? Ultimate recipients means that we should be challenged in terms of our values and make choices. We have free will. We're challenged to, to make choices of right and wrong, good and bad. And if we do, so we're ultimate recipients of good. And if we don't, don't. Why do we have to become so theological about it? God's oneness and the, the, the comparison to five false philosophies about God's oneness. What do we need that whole theological bit for? Every, I mean, most of us, let's, let's face it, you know, on very simple levels, we struggle all day long with choices to make. Uh, three quarters of them are not theological choices that we can directly relate to God becoming one. Uh, what does it have to do with it? It has to do with, will I daven or won't I daven? Will I eat kosher or won't I eat kosher? Will I open up my mouth and speak Lashon Har and slander or won't I open up my mouth and speak Lashon Har? There's nothing sophisticated about it with God's oneness and all of that. And, and why isn't it enough? Why isn't it enough to just say that man is presented with a whole host of challenges and if he's successful, he's developed through his challenges, so he deserves the good that he gets because he's, de- he's developed through his challenges. Finished. All of a sudden, Rav Chaim Latsata seems to be superimposing something new over here, God's oneness. Right? So the answer for that... Let's just go through it logically, and then we'll see it inside. The answer to that is very simple. Because Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat has said before that the only way that a person can ultimately really be happy is not only if he chooses, but that ultimately he should land up in a relationship with God. Right? Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat didn't say that the only, the only function, the only tov, is by developing through choice. It's developing through choice, but there was another part to it also. What was the other part? That shleimus, that perfection, wholesomeness, is the relationship with God. So now we seem to be very confused. On the one hand, Rav Moshe Chaim said that the ultimate recipient is the one that receives through choice. On the other hand, Rav Moshe Chaim said they're not contradictory, but let's just try to put it together. On the other hand, Rav Moshe Chaim said that the ultimate good is by being in a deep relationship with God, which means knowing God, meaning knowing God's oneness. Now let's make up our mind. Which one of the two is the central goal? Knowing God and having the deep relationship and being happy, or the, ch- the, the development through choice in terms of values? Which one is it? Which one is it? Well, it's but bu- What? Excuse me? One leads to the other. One leads to the other. Oh, okay. So the answer that Rav Moshe Chaim says is that really these are two tracks that really they converge. They come together. They come together in a very brilliant way. What does God want? God wants that the person should be the ultimate recipient of Tov through his choices. But that alone is not going to be the supremest level of existence for the human being. The fact that he's just making choices and he makes right choices still doesn't make him shalim. It still doesn't make him whole. It's true. Every single right choice is a a critical development. That's all true. But that's not going to make him shalim. So what Rav Chaim Latsata says is the following thing. Rav Chaim Latsata says, "Let's, let's let's start correctly. The ultimate goal is shleimus. 
perfection. The ultimate goal is perfection. Now, the way that perfection will be met will have to be through choice. Because if it's not through choice, something's going to be missing in that perfection. Right? So let's, in other words, let's just develop it logically. The ultimate... Anyway, so 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 what Ramesh Chaim Lutzat is saying is the ultimate, the ultimate in terms of reaching Shleimus, the ultimate in terms of Tov is reaching Shleimus. Reaching Shleimus is the total bond with God, the total bond with God through knowing God, which is, which is, is knowing His oneness for whatever reason it is. He's going to explain why it's particularly knowing His oneness. Okay. <clears throat> so, so what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzatz is pointing out is the following thing. Now, so the, the the ultimate the ultimate good is the the ultimate good is this shleimus, right? Is this shleimus? But this shleimus, okay, this shleimus requires that it should go through choice, right? Because if they'll if a person will get to there without choice, without choice, so then he's again missing. So there's no question that the primary, in other words, if you want to know, in other words, what is the primary goal? What is going to make man happy? It's obviously knowing God and having the relationship with God. But knowing God and having the relationship with God, if man would get to it by being forced into it rather than choosing it, there would still be something missing. Because if he hasn't gone through the process of choosing by values to get to it, so that even though he's, he was thrown into it, he's not as developed. So there's no question. In other words, we could have made a mistake in thinking that the ultimate is choosing. The ultimate of everything is that man has choice. That's the greatest good that, would be, that befell man. But that's not true. That's only, as you said, the process to which we get to whatever the goal is. In other words, the goal is the relationship with God. The goal isn't to, ch- to have choice. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's just that whatever the goal is, if we would get to there without any choice, we would be compelled to it, it would be deficient. Because then we didn't work through the process of getting to the goal. But we shouldn't confuse it. Right? And this is, a, this, is a, um, this is a major stumbling block in, for a lot of people. Because a major stumbling block for a lot of people, for instance, when you talk about the value of freedom, right, uh, many people say that the value of freedom is the ability to choose. What the particular goal is doesn't really matter. But the value of freedom is the ability to choose this way or to choose that way and not to be compelled. But that's not logical. Because just the ability to be able to do anything and everything that you want to do in, in and of itself is not is not of it, you know is not the whole story. That's not the that's not the whole thing. But this is a very difficult thing, especially people that come from Russia. When when uh, when you tell them that you sometimes feel in a mitzvah that you have to do the mitzvah, so then they they think it's the biggest disaster. In other words, if you become so spiritually oriented that you feel that you must do it, so then the normal response from a person that comes from a Russian background, and I'll explain why in a moment, is that this is awful. Because even though you got the mitzvah done, but you've lost your freedom. So in other words, what does that statement mean? No, it's very, it's, I'm very sympathetic to it because it comes from their background of not having freedom and not understanding what it's about. 
But what's what's the what's their in other words, they're looking at freedom onto itself. Freedom is what allows the process, but it's not the goal. The goal is what do I acquire through the freedom? What do I acquire through the process? And this is what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying over here. Even though I told you that Bechir is a very important thing because it's the process by which I gain and develop correctly, but that's not the goal. The goal isn't to choose. The goal is to reach something of value. What is the thing of value? The, the relationship with God. Right. Now, what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzatid says now is something which is very interesting. Being that the goal is to reach the oneness of God, the oneness, so how does God start off his world? Where the oneness of God is not clear. Where the oneness of God is not clear. In other words, if a person would be born, and the first thing that he sees is that's for sure that God is one in every facet of oneness. So then he's pushed into a situation. He's compelled. Did he work it out for himself? He didn't work it out for himself. He didn't prove it for himself. He didn't make the choices to sense and to see in everything around him that God is one. So if the goal is God is one, and God can't give that oneness to man immediately because then he's, there's no choice, so then God takes the oneness away. Taking the oneness away is what allows the Yetzirah. It allows the negative inclination. Because once you, you, are, you are struggling that maybe there's more than one force in the world, so then you can be torn between more than one thing. In other words, if you're born into a situation where it's clear God is one, there is nothing else except God, then there are no choices. So it works in a very... In other words, the goal is God's oneness. But to get... but. To be born into that God's oneness would defeat the purpose of Bechira, would defeat the, per, the, the process. So what do you do? You conceal the oneness. Concealing the oneness is the thing more than anything else that creates the Bechira. Because once there's no oneness or the oneness is not clear to you, then you feel that you can struggle between two sides because you see that you believe that there are two sides. So it works out, you know, the, the way the two things come together is, is, is very fascinating. The ultimate goal is oneness. But you're not going to give it to the person, he's going to have to find it. Having to find oneness means that now it's not there. If it's not there, that's what creates the Bechira. Because the moment that I think that maybe there's two forces, maybe there's more than one thing, so then I can be torn between between the two. I can be influenced by one or influenced by the other. This is essentially what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying. So let's just summarize in a nutshell the three, the, uh, Rav Chaim Litzat is saying three major points here. Point number one is that the goal, after everything is said and done, is comprehending God's oneness. Why God's oneness more than anything else we'll see soon. Number two, the fact that this is the goal doesn't exclude the fact that it has to be through the process of Bechira, which means that you have to start off with the concealment of God's oneness. The concealment of God's oneness is precisely the thing that will create all the struggles. This is the sequence that Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzat is developing. Yes? Maybe he's saying, I'm not sure, but maybe he's saying, and the way to make the right choice in the Bechira is to contemplate God's oneness. Yes. Obviously. In other words, every right choice will ultimately be a lesson or a deepening of the lesson of God's oneness. That's what's, that's what's going to come out and from that'll it. that will help you make the right choice. If you, if you comprehend it, it and think about it, it'll steer you to the right Okay, place. that's one. That's true. And sometimes learning from the circumstance, learning from the event will also 
will also give it to you through going through the circumstance. Going through the event will give it to you. For instance, let's say a person makes a wrong choice, not a right choice, but after the wrong choice he gets punished, let's say, just as an example. So then in making the wrong choice and getting punished for the wrong choice, he's also learning something about God's oneness because now he knows that God is related to this world and that he's not guaranteed that just as long as he channels nature. So it's not only the right choices or what you use before, but even what you live with after you've made the choice that will also tell it to you. Okay? Um, There's, um, I, I don't know if I ever shared it with you, but there's, in, in terms of this, uh, in terms of utilizing this concept of God's oneness to help us in our struggles, there's a very fascinating story with Yaakov. Right? Yaakov fought with an angel who was a, a symbol of the negative inclination. With the Malach of Esav, with the angel of Esav, which for all intents and purposes is, was a symbolization of the negative inclination. So it says that Yaakov fought with the angel, and they fought all night long, and the angel wasn't getting any place. And then before dawn was about to come, the angel said, um, let me go, let me go, because it's time for me to sing the praises of God. All of a sudden, this angel of negative inclination has to go daven. He's got to go pray. So he's, you know, he's not getting anywhere. He can't, he can't conquer Yaakov in the battles, physical, spiritual battles that were going on all night long. So he says, let me go. I have to go sing the praises of God. So Yaakov asks the Malach of Esav, what's your name? That's what it says in the Chumash. I want to know your name. To which the Malach says, Why do you want to know my name? And then it says, And he blessed him there. And that was the end of it. And then he let him go. So the Malbim says, first of all, we have to understand what is this that all of a sudden the Malach had to say Shira, the Malach had to sing. And the Yerushalmi tells us that this was the first time that the, the, neg- the Malach, this particular negative inclination, was going to daven. The first time in its life. Okay? And it, the first time in its life. That's number one. S- number two, why did Jacob have to know the name of the Malach? Number three, it doesn't seem to suggest that he ever got an answer. He just said, Madu And it says twice, And he blessed him there. It says twice. So the Malbim explains, one of the commentaries there explains a very profound thing, which is very much related to what I just mentioned here. The Malbim explains <coughs> that essentially what, the Malach, what Yaakov wanted to know was, after fighting all night long, right, and wrestling with the most intense forces of the negative inclination, Yaakov wanted to know one thing. Yaakov wanted to know what's the essence of this negative inclination. What is it? And that was the question that Yaakov had. What's your name? What's your name means what are you? What's your existence? What are you all about? You seem to be very powerful. You seem to be a separate existence from the existence of God. You seem to be able to fight very strong. You always bounce back. One day I conquer you. The next day you're back with a new scheme. Who are you? What's your name? Explain to me what your essence is. Explain to me what your essence is. To which the Malach said, I don't have a name. Why do you ask me my name? Means you're making a mistake. I don't have a name. I come one day looking like this and another day looking like this. I'm a facade. I am the, the, an imagination to the human being every day in another way. 
but I, who am I? I don't have any identity of my own at all. I'm nothing more than a fog, a camouflage, the ability to make an illusion, the ability to make man imagine things that are, that really aren't. That's my, that's my strength. I'm like a magician that makes something appear even though it's not there. If that's my whole essence, that I make something appear that's really not there, am I anything? I'm nothing. Because all I do all day long is falsify and try to create reality out of what's illusion. I don't have a name. So the Malbim says that when the Yetzirah is said, now to, un- to look at the Yetzirah and to understand that the Yetzirah, that the negative inclination doesn't have a name, is a very high level. Because most of us give a lot more credit to the Yetzirah than saying that it doesn't have a name. It really is. It's, the, it's more live than maybe sometimes in our Yetzirah We believe in it more than our Yetzirah I mean, after everything is said and done, I think most people believe more that they have a Yetzirah that's real or strong than they have a Yetzirah. Isn't that true? Let's face it. Isn't it true? It's, it's very true. Uh, it's very true. And when the Malach said to Yaakov at the end of the night that he was successful in fighting on all levels, I don't have a name, by Yavarech HaYisayisham. That was the greatest blessing that Yaakov could have gotten. The knowledge of knowing that that negative inclination, that that negative inclination is nothing more than an imaginary state to test man, to make man grow, right? to make man grow, that was the greatest blessing that Yaakov got. Now, when that was accomplished, the Malach had accomplished its, its purpose in this world for the first time having accomplished its purpose for the first time of teaching man that I'm really nothing except a, a building block for you to grow from. And more than that, I don't have any legitimate existence. Then the Malach is ready to say Shira for the first time. The Malach is ready to sing for the first time because it's legitimized its existence because one person has come full swing in the recognition that it's not a force unto itself. Now, using this as an example, using this as an example, we can go back to what I just said about God's oneness. In other words, if one lives in God's oneness, if one lives in God's oneness, so then when one one can look the negative inclination straight in the eye and say, "You're also sent from God. You're you're not here for anything else except to help me grow." I don't look at you as something independent or separate from God. I see you as some, a shliach from God. I see you as a messenger from God trying to assist and help me grow. That's a perspective of oneness. Now, sometimes we have that perspective before we get into trouble. Sometimes we gain that perspective after we gain, get into trouble and we realize that what we were running after didn't, wasn't, didn't have any value. Sometimes, even after we do it, we believe that it had value until we get it over the head. And then we realize that it really didn't have value. You know, it's short-term, long-term, but sooner or later we find out that it didn't have value. Now, but if we would start with the clarity of God's oneness, we wouldn't be driven. We would see each thing as another opportunity to grow, another challenge, another thing that God is sending my way. That's why, for instance, when it says that in Mashiach's times there's not going to be a Yetzirah, that when Mashiach comes there's not going to be Yetzirah, negative inclination. So what is that supposed to mean? What is it supposed to mean? So some people envision that you know the Yetzirah is some kind of a demon and God is going to take out a spear and He's going to spear the demon. He's going to destroy the demon. That's nonsense. That's baloney. What's going to happen in the times of Mashiach is 
that there's just going to be a clarity of God's oneness. The, the, in other words, that goal that the world was created for, which is God's oneness and an understanding of God's oneness, will be so clear that immediately the Sahara, the negative inclination, won't have the strength to fight you. Because you're going to say, you're doing this to me and you're trying to do this to me, but this is all for my growth. I don't see you as an independent thing to worship or to, to align myself with. Let me give an, one more example and then we'll go further. And we'll see this inside. Let me give one more example of this. <coughs> the the Yetzirah, the negative inclination, has three states. The negative inclination has three states. One state is the state of temptation, temptation and enticement. That's his one. That's his first stage. His second stage is his stage of enti- of, of prosecution, where after after he convinces the person to do the wrong thing, then he makes the person suffer for having done the wrong. He prosecutes, and then the final third stage is the punishment that he creates. Right? Now, if one would want to analyze this. If one would want to analyze this, let me, let me try to develop it a little bit so it's not abstract and mystical. Before a person gets involved into so, in something that's really negative, right, so essentially, it's only a thought. It's an idea. After he does it, it's not a thought and an idea anymore. It's part of him. Once it's part of him, once it's part of him, it's in contradiction with other parts of who he is as a human being. There's a contradiction. There's a question. In other words, as long as I didn't do it and I'm just thinking about doing it, it's really external. But once I do it, I internalize it. Certainly if I do it more than once, it becomes more and more internal. Then I've created an internal conflict. How, you, you say you're this, but you did this. And there's a conflict. There's a prosecution going on within man. There's an inconsistency within man. That's the prosecution level. And then the final level is that we suffer from the things that we introduce into our system that don't belong there. That's the third level. And this is what the Talmud says when the Talmud says, who Yetzirah, who Hasatan, who Malachamavis. There are three terms in the Talmud. Yetzirah, negative inclination, Satan, prosecution, and Malachamavis, the angel of death or the angel of punishment. So the Gemara says, even though they have three different names in our literature, I want you to know that they're really all one. But they have three different stages. There's the stage of temptation, then there's the stage of introducing the prosecution or the contradiction within man, which questions man's integrity and credibility, and then the final stage where the inconsistency itself, man suffers from it. Not an external punishment, but the inconsistency itself, man suffers from the inconsistency that he's introduced into himself. This is what the Gemara says. So, there's an interesting phenomena when we blow the shaifer on Rosh Hashanah, <coughs> when we blow the shaifer on Rosh Hashanah, it says that the satan, the satan gets very confused, and when we blow it a second time, he gets all, uh, completely scared, and he disappears. Why? Why? Because he knows that the shaifer, that the sound of the shaifer is one of the signs of Mashiach's coming. So he's afraid that why, 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 why do I hear the kail of the shaifer? Why do I hear the voice of the shaifer? Because 
because maybe Mashiach's coming. If Mashiach's coming, I'm out of a job. Okay, ich bin eisgespielt. I'm out of my job. So he gets scared, and he hears it enough, he disappears. So there's there's two obvious questions with this. This is a piece of Gemara. The Gemara says it in Rosh Hashanah in the Talmud in Rosh Hashanah. So there are two obvious questions with this. First of all, I I'm sure the Sutton is smart enough to know that there's hallmark greeting cards for Rosh Hashanah and that there's a Rosh Hashanah and that people go and get ready for Rosh Hashanah. The Yetzirah is pretty smart. The Yetzirah knows that there's a Rosh Hashanah every year and the Yetzirah knows that there's a Shaifa. He might even convince somebody not to go to shul to listen to the Shaifa. So he knows that the Shaifa is linked to Rosh Hashanah. So what is he getting so panic-stricken for? That's number one. Number two, why does he leave his job of prosecution? He should at least make a last-ditch effort at getting the Jew in trouble before Mashiach comes instead of just running away a scary cat. What does this mean? He disappears. He doesn't prosecute. And we want that because we want that there should be no prosecution against us on the Day of Judgment. But what does it mean? What does he get scared for? Let him say his piece, whatever it is. I mean, where is he going to run? If his days are over, his days are over. Where is he running? So here too, the concept is the same concept. One of the one of the deepest concepts of how Rosh Hashanah functions is that the Jew himself calls in the Day of Judgment. There are countless medrashim which say that the angels stand before God and say to God, "When is your Day of Judgment? That awesome day of the year." And God answers the angels and says, it's not up to me, it's up to the Jews. When they say it's Rosh Hashanah, that's when it's Rosh Hashanah. Which refers to the fact that they brought in the new month and so on and so forth. Furthermore, the Medrash says that when we blow the shaifah, that is actually calling God into the chambers of justice. The initial thing that the shaifah does is call God into the chambers of justice. Now the question that comes up with that, I'm going very quickly here, but the question that comes up with that is, are we crazy? It w- wouldn't it be better if God wouldn't come into the chambers of justice? We have to invite him in. If he doesn't, if he's not coming in, let him not come in. But the answer is a very interesting answer. Because we actually encourage a day of justice. Because if we encourage a day of justice, and the day is permeated with a sense of judgment, so we pick up that feeling of judgment. Our neshama, our souls pick up the sense, of, that feeling of judgment. When we pick up the feeling of judgment, we begin to look at ourselves. In other words, when there is no ear of judgment in the air, and when there's nobody breathing down my back, so I'm not self-conscious, self-conscious about myself. I don't look at myself. But if there is an ear of judgment, there is a sense of judgment in the world, this motivates me to look also. Now, when I look, when I look at myself, if I'm honest, I know that there are a lot of things that are not in order. And I feel bad about them, if there's a true recognition. Once I feel bad about where I'm at, then God can feel bad for us also. In other words, until we have a recognition of where we are and we're open to feeling who, about ourselves in a productive way, which in this particular case is I feel bad that I didn't do this, or I feel bad that I, didn't, I had this opportunity and I didn't accomplish it, I feel bad that I didn't develop in this way. Once the person can evoke feelings and emotions about himself spiritually, so then God can feel for the person also. But until the person feels for himself, God can't feel for him because it's going to be wasted emotions. So what is the Jew doing here? This is a very interesting process. What does man do? Man actually calls the day of judgment into being. 
by sanctifying the new month. He calls God into the chambers of justice by blowing the shaifer. Why? Because he wants to feel a sense of judgment. Because by feeling a sense of judgment, he'll introspect. By introspecting, he'll feel sad about things that he didn't accomplish. And once he can feel about himself, then he can create God's compassion towards him as well. If I feel for myself, then God can feel for me also. Now there's a partnership here. I'm feeling for myself, and God can feel for me as well. <clears throat> what comes out from this? Analyze it for a moment. So what am I doing? I'm taking the power of the prosecution and using it to build myself. What am I doing? I'm taking the Satan, I'm taking the Yetzirah, I'm taking the power of prosecution and utilizing it to build myself. Why? Because I'm saying, okay, all the prosecution in the world that's against me, let it come before God on this day. Because the minute it comes in, my neshama feels that I'm in trouble. And when my neshama feels that I'm in trouble, I feel bad about that. And if I feel bad, then God will feel bad as well. So what do I do? I'm actually taking the tools of the satan and using them to grow. That's what I'm doing. I'm taking the very tools of the Satan himself and using them to grow. So the Satan says, now I lost my job. I lost my job because as long as the Yetzirah and the Satan is separate from growth, so then the Satan has nothing to be worried about. But once the person takes the Yetzirah and the Satan and uses it to grow, so then the Satan says, I'm finished. The Jew is coming to oneness. The Jew is bringing everything back into oneness. He recognizes that even judgment and even prosecution is for, for, for the purposes of growth. So what is the Jew approaching? The Jew is approaching God's oneness. If the Jew is approaching God's oneness, I've got to be scared that Mashiach is coming because that's Mashiach's times. That's why, so of course the Sutton knows that they're greeting cards. Of course the Sutton knows that there's a Rosh Hashanah. But the very fact that the Jew can take the very strength of the Satan, which is always envisioned as against the person, and make it for the person, now the Satan says, now I'm in trouble. Now there's oneness. Now that there's oneness in the perspective of man, so, so this is Mashiach's times. This is why, by the way, if you look at all of the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, I know it's not Rosh Hashanah, but this is an example of this concept. This is why, if you look at all of the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, it always talks about God being king, making God king, making God king. It's a day of judgment. It's a day of shaifar. What, what's this business about making God king? What? So there are many answers to it. I think that this is the most accurate answer. If a person is making God one, then he's making him into the true king. As long as there are other things in the person's life, so then God is a king, and then there are other things that are kings. Maybe I'm a king myself. I'm a king, and God's a king, and the Yetzirah is a king, and there are a whole bunch of kings. But with the process of Rosh Hashanah, I'm getting closer to God's oneness. So I'm giving God the crown that He Himself, He uniquely deserves as king. And that's the concept of the, roi the king, the, the Malchus, the royalty that comes into Rosh Hashanah. Okay. Yeah. You, when you spoke about the Yaakov's fight for the angels, <laughs> yeah. you said that because Yaakov came to the realization that he's an illusion, really, the Malach. Right, that he doesn't have. That, he's that not that a Matthias, but the Malach could go and say Shira. Because he had but accomplished the, his purpose. But it seems to contradict what you're just saying now about 
the Yetahara being concerned about being out of a job. Okay. So the answer to that is very simple. Because in terms of the individual, in terms of the individual, the Yaakov has accomplished the Sutton has accomplished his, his job in terms of this individual, but certainly not for the world. But when you get the whole Klal Yisrael get together on Rosh Hashanah, a blowing shaifer as a Klal Yisrael, not as a Yachid, but as a Klal Yisrael, as a whole people, then he has to be concerned that we are moving towards God's oneness. Yaakov was an individual, and in terms of an individual, he accomplished his purpose. But he still didn't accomplish his purpose. Yaakov was only one person. The Sutton knew that he was still in business, but he had at least legitimized his existence by virtue of one individual. That's Shira. When he legitimizes his, ex- his existence by virtue of everybody, that's when his job's over. Then he ceases to say Shira because he ceases to function. He ceases. But until that point, I've made one contribution to the cause, I've made another contribution to the cause, and another contribution to the cause. The individuals, on an individual level, he's accomplished. That's the Shira. The covered Shema. You know, what's, what's the, let's analyze it a little bit. What's Shira? What's Shira? See, what you're envisioning is that I'm singing the song of my success. The Sutton's not singing the song of his success. The Sutton is singing the song of, 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 of the revelation of God. But in one case, in the case of one individual, his life is not over yet. It's only Yaakov. It's nobody. Goal is to realize God's oneness? Yes. According to Rav Meshachayim that's it. Why that's it? What is is obviously what we have to explain is why is it uniquely that, and what's included in that, which Rav Meshachayim Latzat is going to do in a few moments. That's the next thing he's going to do. Why is it this? Right? Why is it specifically God's oneness more than anything else? Why is this the the epitome? Right. Right. Why by you Hashem is constantly testing him yeah. to see what his what his moon is constantly testing him. Right. As if though that was that was the ultimate. I mean, in other words. Okay. So. Okay, it's a good thing happening all the time. Okay. So if you if you study carefully Nachmanides' uh, commentary on Job, right you'll see that Nachmanides says that each and every test that Job was getting was for something that happened in a previous lifetime. That is where Nachmanides talks about the concept of reincarnation. And he explains that virtually every experience that Job went through was a tikkun, was to correct a situation from a former time that his neshama was in this world. In other words, for, for E of himself, he didn't deserve all of this. But the extent of the tikkun that his neshama needed, the correction that his neshama needed from a former lifetime or former lifetimes, he needed each and every one of those crises. Which meant that the neshama would not be fully developed in its contact with God's oneness until it would have lived through each and every crisis. Right? And this is very hard for us to judge. What did each one contribute? What did they contribute as a whole unit? Why weren't three crises enough? Why did it have to be 15? Obviously, that's something that's very hard for us to measure because we can't measure neshama and the correction to neshama. But Nachmanides says very clearly that the legitimacy of each and every crisis 
was because it made an advancement in the development of his neshama. Excuse me. But the question of emuna is also a question, a question of the development of neshama, because when a person is tested, and the test that he gets becomes a test of emuna, when the person rises in the test, that's not only a cerebral success. It's a success in the development of his neshama if he succeeds in a test of emuna, right? So the tests of emuna were the particular thing that made a tikkun. I dare say that they weren't only in the level of emuna; they were also in in the in the relationship of physical to spiritual as well, because he under he went underwent physical torment as well, and there is a benefit. Right? Or there's a relationship between the physical torment and, and the neshama as well. It's not only an emuna, but even in the aspect of emuna, that's also development for the neshama. That's not just a, a theological connection. The person that advances in emuna has opened up or has corrected a level of neshama that was closed before. So, no, the, 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 the situation with Job, I know that when you read Job and everything else, it seems that the function of everything was just to test. Just to test. But what we have to... Not only Amuna. It wasn't only Amuna. I mean, the Nachmanides himself doesn't go into it at length. But even if it's Amuna, it's also the Tikkun of the Neshama from a previous time. Because that's an opening. That's an opening that the Neshama has. Question. Yeah, um, you said that you could either come to the right choice from from the negative experience, right, or from keeping the oneness of God in front of you. On a very practical level, down to earth, is that the idea behind? I mean, I know there are other ideas behind this, but like wearing a yarmulke, a beard, living in a very religious neighborhood, wearing tzitzis out—all these things. Yes, absolutely. Brachais. Right, all these obvious things. Yeah, obviously, yes. To make that connection. To, to, in other words, let's say you have a physical object in front of you. So you can see the physical object is one thing and God is a separate thing. By the institution of a bracha, you're immediately saying that this is also in God's realm and that through the blessing, God is giving it to you. So there is again that, that oneness that you're creating in creation. Through the bla- through the bracha, the the connections, the mezuzah, reminds you of Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, right? The tefillin is Echad, uh, the different symbols is Echad, the Shabbos is Creator and Sustainer. If you analyze it, if you analyze it, that's what it all boils down to, right? The Ramban in one place in Chumash. The Ramban, Nachmanides, in one place in Chumash, at the end of the portion of Bo, says a phenomenal statement. He says that the, the purpose of all mitzvahs, the common denominator purpose of all mitzvahs, is that a person should come to the point of being able to say with a full heart, Briyasecha Anachnu, that we are your created beings. That's what Nachmanides says. Now one begins to ask the question, that, you know, seemingly like we need all of the mitzvahs in order to say Briyasecha Anachnu. And Nachmanides is saying something very deep, because in the psyche of man, man wants to be, believe that God is in existence, and maybe I'm not the same existence as God, but I'm also existence. Right? We don't relate to, to the being created. God is a creator and we are a created. 
Right? And knowing the dependency of being a created and that I'm, my existence is completely tied to God. Nachmanidi says that the function of all mitzvahs is to come to that recognition. Now, when you look at the Ramban on the surface, that sounds like a real egotistical God. Right? The function of all mitzvahs is that we should come to the point of saying, Yes, we are your creatures. That sounds terribly egotistical, doesn't it? Right? But the answer is that what Nachmanides is referring to is this concept of oneness. That's what he's talking about. In other words, in other words, if, if we see ourselves subconsciously on equal with God, God exists and I exist, so then that is, on a very deep level, a contradiction to God's oneness. And if it's a contradiction to God's oneness, invariably there's going to be the division, a division between me and him. You know what division? that he exists and I exist. And by definition, that he exists and I exist with two entities. And if we are two entities, that itself, by definition, is a barrier. You're an entity and I'm an entity. So there's a barrier. in the defi- By definition, there's a barrier. But if I say, so what I'm saying is that I'm, I'm, I flow from you, then there's no barrier. There's a oneness. And I'm, I'm one with you. It's not that you exist and I exist, but I flow from you. That's, that's a oneness concept that the Ramban is saying. And the Ramban says that all of the mitzvahs are to create the ability for the person to really believe it. And not to just to say, I'm your creature, but to really believe it. So the, the positive mitzvahs give a person a sense of God. The negative mitzvahs take away the junk that, make, that creates the static that we believe that there are separate realms in the world, and that's the function of the mitzvahs. In other words, when the Torah says, don't do this, what is the Torah trying to say? Stay away from this, because this is going to create such internal confusion that you will believe that there's a separate, and, uh, uh, there's a separate existence from God. Right? And you have to give it up if you're a hero and you're religious or observant. You're giving something up. There is another realm, and you're giving it all up. Right? You're giving it up, and it's hard, and it seems like we're giving it all up. But the function of all of the do-nots is that we shouldn't come to believe in another realm. The function of all of the positive mitzvahs is that we become nurtured in what God is. So there's two things. In other words, the, the positive mitzvahs strengthen our connection to God. The negative commands weaken our connections to all the others. When we have when we have this two pronged attack at strengthening the realm of God's realness and the one of weakening the other, so then we will eventually get to the point of saying, "I know that I flow from you. I know that I'm an extension of you. I'm not a separate entity." And that's a statement of oneness. And when the person says that, listen to what it means. When you can say honestly that I feel that I flow from you. That means all I am is you. That's a, that's a oneness. That's a tremendous oneness with Hakarish Baruch. That's a tremendous relationship, right? To the extent that we feel different than our partner in a marriage, and we feel that we have, you 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 come from somewhere else. You are on a different wavelength. You don't relate to what I'm talking about, and I don't relate to what you're talking about. I certainly don't think that I flow from you, or you flow from me, right? But when we think the same, and when we can predict what's in each other's heads. And when we can feel for each other, 
So then, at, at a certain point, if one's experienced this, one comes to almost feel that I come out of you. I flow from you. One flows from the other. Why? Because the ultimate bond is where one doesn't perceive any barriers, where one doesn't perceive separate entities. <coughs> Humph. Okay. I did it again. <laughs> Terrible. Okay. But it's a little bit your fault also, because you asked me a lot of questions. Okay. Now. This is what God wanted more than anything else. And it was by this, because of this intent, that he established all of the laws of his creation. Okay? Now, Rav Moshe is making a dramatic statement. And Rav Moshe is saying, if the goal of the world is to reach this oneness, God created the world in a way that we can ultimately use everything in the world to reach that oneness. Now, this is a phenomenal statement. You know what Rav Moshe is saying? In other words, Rav Moshe is saying, it's not that God created a world and He superimposed an ultimate goal. And that goal is not really related to what he created in his world. No. When he decided what he should create, how much of it he should create, where it should be, when it should be, that was all programmed how will it bring the, the world closer and closer by the choices of man. Okay? So, let, let me give you an example. Right? Let me give you an example. We think, okay, we think that God created a world and then he also wrote a Torah which tells us do this and do this and don't do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that. And, and then we have to take this book called Torah and we have to throw it at the world. And we throw the book at the world. And we say this book must be applied to this world. And that's the way we envision it. Now, if that's true, if that's true, that God created a world independent of any considerations. He created a world. He made a nice, fancy world, a pretty world, a world that we could enjoy, which is all true, by the way. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. But the Torah really was, a, was not... It wasn't part of the consideration when God created the world. God created the world. He wanted man to enjoy the world. But God said, I also want you to be moral and ethical. So therefore, besides giving you the whole beautiful world, I'm going to give you a book of ethics. And this is the book, and apply the book to the world. Now, if this would be true, if this would be true, we would have, it, it would only be coincidental that, that, uh, that the ultimate purpose of the Torah would be consistent with the world. What did we just finish saying? That the Taira is the do's and the don'ts. What is the ultimate goal of all of the do's and the don'ts? To, for the person to ultimately be able to sense God's oneness and how I flow from God and I'm not a separate entity. That's the purpose of the Taira. That also happens to be the purpose of the world, right? So the two things just happened to be. The Taira happens to create oneness. The goal of the world happens to be to reach God's oneness. So the two things just happened 
to be. A nice coincidence. But that's not the way we, we see it. We see it the exact opposite. We see it that there was a Tyra. And what's the purpose of the Tyra? The, tyra, the purpose of the Tyra is to create the oneness. Now, once the purpose of the, of the Tyre was to create this oneness, God now used the Tyre as a blueprint and created a world that could function with Tyre. I'll give you a silly example, all right? a real silly example. Most of us think, this is one of those chicken and egg things, that since there's chazer in the world, therefore the Tyre says don't eat it. Isn't that how most people think? There's a chazer in the world, and God looks at his world, mm, look at that, disgusting, don't eat it. Right? In other words, he created it, and then he, on top of creating the chazer, now made a law in the Torah to say, don't eat the chazer. Isn't that how we most, most of us look at it? Yeah. It's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. God wanted that the person should have a discipline and a self-control of what he eats and what he doesn't eat, because God knew that the discipline and the control of what he eats and what he doesn't eat will enhance his sense of, cre- of being a create- created from God. It will enhance that. So therefore, he created the Chazer. In other words, it starts from the Torah. In other words, the Torah, in the Torah is the goal. The, t- the goal of the Torah is for a person to w- cut, walk away with a sense of that we are created from you. Right? That's, that's what the whole thing is ultimately for. Right? And that's what the Torah is for. Now that they, it, Since that's what the Torah is for, so now God creates a world that will be able to accommodate that goal. So it's not as if the world is created and now I have to find the goal. No, the goal is established and the goal becomes the blueprint of the world, which means now I'll create a world which will accommodate those things. I'll make, make certain things which I'll incorporate, which will bring me closer to God. I will make certain things that I have to push away. And push the strength to push away is also a form of, of development. So being that God recognized that there have to be things to push away and there have to be things to integrate, so God made certain things that you can eat and certain things that you can't eat. And man develops from the things that he's required to eat and from the things that he's prohibited from eating. So the Torah is the blueprint and the world is created upon it, which essentially means to make it simpler that the goal is established and then the world is built around. Just like you build a building. Do you build a building and then decide what you want to do with it? Or do you make the, or do you have the goal in mind and then you create the building to serve the goal? Most people decide what they want and then they build a building around it. When you build your home, you go to the contractor and say, well, do whatever you want and then I'll figure out which room I'll use for my living room. You don't do that. Right? You decide on the goal and then you create the building. So, Ramesh Chaim Lutzat is saying, I just told you what the ultimate goal is. God's oneness. Now, I want you to know that the world that God created with all of the natural reactions of the world are all tuned in to ultimately getting to that goal. So, for instance, let me, ex- let me give uh, an example that might be a little bit more understandable than the Chazer example. <coughs> it, is it necessarily so that when God created the world, that the world should not give fruit when we do Averis? when we do wrong things. God says that if you do right things, the world will produce correctly. And if you do wrong things, the world won't produce correctly. 
Is there any logical connection between the things that I do right and wrong in the world? Is there any logical connection between the two? What The fact that I went over to somebody and smacked them in the mouth. So that's why next summer when I go to my apple tree, there are no apples on the tree. There's no connection. There's no normal connection between the two. But, so what's the answer? What's the answer? That God put into the ingredients of the world the goal. The goal is that man should reach his oneness. Now, if a person does something which is not going to reach, not going to give the person the sensitivity of God's oneness, the world will react to make the adjustment. He will be punished. The world won't produce the way it's supposed to produce for him. He'll learn a lesson, and by learning that lesson, he's going to be coming back to the oneness. So in other words, since the world is programmed to God's oneness, when man goes away from the oneness, the world goes haywire. Because you're going against the program. In other words, the, the world's program is oneness, and if I work against it, it goes haywire. It, it doesn't work properly. Let me give you another example. It's a silly example. Right? But again, it's very much consistent with this principle, with this thought. You have two people. One person eats to be healthy. One person eats because he loves eating. Right? Now, where does the, the distinction usually lie between these two people? The person that eats to be healthy is really eating for a higher goal. Because what's the goal of being healthy? Because I have things to do in my life. So let's assume, just for argument's sake, that he wants to be healthy because he wants to, he wants to be a productive human being and do what God wants him to do. And if he's sick, he can't do it. If he's laid up with a heart condition or with diabetes or whatever else it is that he brought upon himself by bad diet or something like that, he can't do what he was supposed to do. So his motivation to eat is to be healthy so that he should be able to function in all of the ways to have a meaningful life. The other person essentially eats because it's enjoyable. Now, what is going to be the difference between these two people? The first difference between these two people is one is eating for the right reason and is really connected to God even when he eats. And the other person is really connected to himself and not to anything else. What's the difference? The difference is the following. The person that's eating to be healthy is not going to eat junk. won't overeat. Ultimately, will he be sick? No. The person that's eating because he enjoys eating well, the more you eat, the more you enjoy, right? Up to a certain point, I realize. But he'll, he'll overeat and he'll get sick because he won't make the distinction between healthy food and non-healthy food or the amount of food. So 30 years down the road, you have two people. This one ate in a connection to God. This person didn't eat in a connection to God. This person's healthy and this person is sick. Now, one would think, oh, well, it's just a, you know, it's a natural coincidence. This person ate healthy, so he's healthy. This person didn't eat healthy, so he's sick. But really what it is, is because God made the person healthy in the plan of God's oneness. So your body functions when you're consistent with everything that brings to God's oneness. So if you eat in the spirit of, of reaching God, so you'll remain healthy because that's what you were created for, to reach that goal. So you're using the machine in the correct way. But if you use the machine without the recognition of God's oneness, so you're working against the program. You are programmed to reach God's oneness, but you're not behaving in a way that's going to reach God's oneness. So what happens to the system that's programmed one way and is used the other way? It goes haywire. So... So the point that Rav Meshachayim Lassat is saying over here is a very deep point. 
the goal of the world, the spiritual goal of the world, the spiritual identity and mission of a person is not unrelated to the physical world. But the physical world was programmed to be sensitive to that goal. It's programmed to be sensitive to that goal and it will respond to that goal and if one works against the goal it will respond negatively to that goal. Yeah. But that seems to discount the idea of Yisurim. That's, that's saying that, it's, it's, that each person is really causing uh, what's happening to them. But you see in people's lives that sometimes they're not doing anything. Things befall them. Okay. Let me, let me just say that by and large the Talmud says that Yisurim comes for things that we do, not for things that we don't do. By and large, a person has to be quite, quite big to assume that the Yisurim that are coming to him are not coming to him for, for something that he has to undo from his past. So by and large, Yisurim, one has to be very, very meticulous in being completely sure that the Yisurim that he's getting He's 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 getting for something that's unrelated to something that he did earlier. I would I would dare say that a majority of times it's for something that he did do. Now, in the event, okay, in the event that it's not for something that he did, in the event that it's for something that he didn't do, that is a unique situation. Those are unique situations of the 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 concept of Yusurim Shalava where the person didn't do anything to, to inflict this pain, but this pain is inflicted for a higher purpose, right? this is a very unique situation, and it's the exception to the rule as opposed to being the rule. The mo- it's not the model rule, it's the exception to the rule, where God uses something in, not in the normal way that, it's being, that it was functioned to be used, but in an abnormal way for a higher goal. Right? But that's not the normal way. The normal way is 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 within the relationship of cause and effect, consistent with God oneness or not consistent. There is a concept of Yisurim Shalava, but that's the exception. That's not the rule. Yeah. Interesting thought, but from the opposite point of view, you said that there is a connection between someone who sins and the next season his apple tree doesn't grow. What about the Russia that Vitovlo, that the Russia who doesn't get punished while on this earth. How is he supposed to learn All right. to make that clear? So again, so I'll answer the same way that I answered her. That I answered her. That it's not the single relationship between man and his world. The one that I described. It's not the single one. There's Yisurim Shalava on the one hand. There is a situation where God has to pay the Russia back for the good thing that he did. Or that... Well, that will come in the next world like you said before. Exactly. There, it's not the down. single factor. Okay? It's not the single factor, but the major thrust of the world is going in the direction of a program towards the goal. That is the major thrust. Now, where does, it ha- where does this have its major implication? You know where it has its major implication? In a place where we don't want to hear it too well or too much. And that is the notion that nature and God's expectations of us are in contradiction with each other. By definition, nature, the nature of man, biologically, the nature of man in his chemistry, the nature of the world, inherently, is in contradiction to God and God's expectations. Everything that I just said in the last 15-20 minutes is saying the exact opposite. 
In other words, the notion that God creates the world and then thrusts me into it and says, I have abnormal expectations of you. The spiritual ex- expectations, the holy expectations, but I grant you they're abnormal. Right? Right? It doesn't make, it's not, think for a moment, is it logical? Now, I'm not yet answering how it's, we should feel that they're natural. We don't, do feel the expectations are abnormal. I, I'm not talking about the feeling level. I'm talking on the logical level. Does it make sense on a logical level that God should create a world and then say to man, you know, I created a world and the world would make you behave this way. I want you to act abnormally. I specifically created a world that you should go into it and be a freak. It does, logically, it doesn't make sense. Does it make sense logically? That... It, that, in other words, that I create one scenario and I have to, so to speak, fight against City Hall. I gotta, I, I'm running up against a wall. That doesn't make sense. Right? Now, so what's the answer? What's, does it, on a logical plane, it doesn't make sense. But after everything is said and done, don't we feel that way? That the expectations are that we should be freaks and abnormal? and that the nature is to do certain things, and now God is saying, but you can't do them for spiritual reasons, but naturally I would do them. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the way we feel? What's the answer? The answer is very simple. Because, it's, it's, again, it's a very high level, but the contradiction that we feel between nature and the expectations is because we've isolated nature from God. God is one realm, and the whole world and the physical world is a separate one. We envision them as two separate things. We don't see an echad between them. We don't live in echad. We don't live as it as, as one. We don't take everything from the physical world towards God. We take physical things from the world away into our path. God, leave me alone. I'm enjoying myself now. As nothing. In other words, we envision our physical connection to the world as a separate connection from the one that we have with God. Oh, if we envision the physical world as a separate one from God, then it, by darn, it's going to be. You can make the physical world into a, a separate entity from God and then feel a, a conflict between the two. Let me give you, you, you know, you talk, you talk about... Right, the practical, the oneness. This all goes back to the oneness. Let me, let me give you a practical example, okay? A practical example. How often do we feel that after we do something that's real physical, if it's eating, if it, whatever it might be, that it's very hard to get up and do a mitzvah afterwards. Right, let's be honest with ourselves, right? Not in the mood, not in the atmosphere. And I'm not talking about doing an Avera. I'm, to, I'm not talking about doing something that was morally or ethically wrong. I was just involved very physically in something. Right? And then a minute later, somebody taps me on the back and says, it's time for Mincha, we need a minion. Leave me alone, who's interested in a minion for Mincha now, right? Isn't that true? Come on, let's be honest. We're not interested, right? Where does this distinction lie? Now, if this person would be involved physically in, the, in whatever he's involved, and he's saying that my involvement, let's say it's eating, and he says, I'm sitting down and I'm eating, and I'm not denying the fact that I enjoy it, but I thank God for giving it to me. I make the bracha before. I make the bracha afterwards. I thank God for making the food tasty. I feel a sense of appreciation. I don't forget all of those things and just shovel it down and wash it down. But I feel, thank you for giving to me. I appreciate it. You made it tasty. You could have made all food taste the same and then life would be miserable. 
if there's a sense of a connection to God, so then I can get up from the table and I can do a mitzvah. When is it difficult? When I isolate the physical thing and it doesn't have a connection. Then I feel when I get up from the physical connection that I'm in conflict with doing a mitzvah. Because then I'm really going between two worlds. But who made the two worlds? I didn't, God didn't make the two worlds. He certainly didn't intend it to be two worlds. Man makes the two worlds and then complains that he's a schizophrenic between the two. <laughs> Do you follow what I'm saying? And this is this also this runs very very deep because a lot of struggles that people have with Yiddishkeit with Judaism is that they they are afraid that they're going to be restrained in the by Yiddishkeit. I won't be able to enjoy. I won't be able to have. You know, there, there's elements of restraining that I feel that come out of Judaism. And because of it, I don't even get into it. I, I, I stand off from it. I don't, I don't want to be restrained in this way and that way. Maybe I'm giving people too much credit. But the, re, the real reality is that as we grow and we mature, we don't want to have to jump between two things. We want to feel a sense of oneness. We don't want to be fragmented. Who really that is, is thoughtful and is mature and wants to be growing wants to feel that I'm going in five directions at the same time? Nobody wants to feel like he's on a roller coaster. So the answer that most of us have for not feeling like a roller coaster, fine, I'll ditch Judaism and I'll only be going down on the roller coaster. There won't be any up. There will only be down. Or, in his mind, he might think that there are only ups and no downs. But, in other words, when I reject Judaism, I reject Judaism because I feel it's a restriction, but on a deeper level, why I'm rejecting it is because I know that if I'm going to get into it, I'm going to constantly have to feel the ups and downs and the guilt and feeling connected and not connected and feeling connected. Who needs the whole thing? I have to feel guilty about what I do. I want to enjoy what I do. I don't want to have to feel like I'm on a roller coaster. So there's two ways of dealing with that. One way of dealing with it is ditch Judaism. So then there's no roller coaster anymore. But not really. There still is a roller coaster because the neshama is still in pain. But the other way of dealing with it is to realize that there really isn't a contradiction between the physical world and the spiritual world. And that there is a way of being connected to the physical world and that you can flow from the physical into the spiritual and from the spiritual into the physical, provided that you're willing to give a quality to your connection of the physical world that has a connection to God. You can enjoy yourself tremendously. The fact that you make a bracha before you eat the food, I guarantee you, does not take away one iota of, of pleasure from the apple that you eat. Or thanking God afterwards doesn't take away one iota of it because what essentially happens is that I have pleasure but I also feel like a mensch. I feel like a human being because I said thank you. I feel like a mensch. Feeling like a mensch, a person wants to feel like a mensch. A person wants to feel like a human being. If my belly is stuffed but I don't feel like a human being, what is, what is feeling full worth? It's not... I mean... Sometimes when we're younger, who the heck cares? Just as long as I'm full and I'm satisfied, who cares about all these other things? But as a person grows older and wants himself to be appreciated, has a sense of esteem for themselves, has a sense of dignity for themselves, so they know that 
they don't want to live on a roller coaster. And the answer is that you don't have to get off the, the car of Judaism not to be on the roller coaster. There's a question of seeing that there isn't really a contradiction between the two. I'll take some questions. I'm not getting any place tonight. I mean, in terms of the text, that is. It yeah. doesn't more say that he was supposed to make a Michael? Is that your first name? Yeah. I want chapter and verse on that. Okay. If something is mother to you, doesn't mean you should indulge in it without any limit, right? I mean, everything has. Ooh, and now you added two right. words without any limit. <laughs> right? I mean, you're supposed to, like, everything has a. Uh, okay, because if it's beyond the limit, so then it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't reach God. In other words, if a person just eats and eats and eats and eats, and he says, I'm eating to be healthy. Because, because you know, that's not true. It's it's a contradiction. You made the bracha. Right, so the bracha is not everything. The bracha is not everything. I was using the bracha as an example, but the bracha it doesn't do everything. That's quite true. The bracha doesn't do everything. Okay, more comments on this. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are. I mean, I've been under this mistaken notion all my life. So this is sort of a, a very new approach that you just said. But um, there are, I think some, some parts that lend to this mistaken notion are it says about certain things, don't do this because all the Gentiles do this. You know, in the Torah, don't do these sins because the gen- there's the Gentiles here. And also the concept of the chosen people, I think that's where I got this mistaken notion that sure, everyone's doing this, but we're chosen. We should be better more ethical. I mean, certainly. I mean, that's that's what I've been hearing all my life. Uh, w- all I can say is that when the Torah says, "Don't do this or don't do that," the thrust of "Don't do" is not the thrust of anti-pleasure. That is not the platform of Judaism. The platform of Judaism is pleasure, but qualitative pleasure and not pleasure that you always feel in conflict with goals. In other words, whenever the Torah says do not do, that is not an anti-pleasure platform. It is a platform of pleasure, but it's introducing a discipline that gives quality to the pleasure. Do you follow what I'm saying? But the Torah, at the beginning of one of his most ethical works, says that the ultimate goal that God had for his world is that people should have pleasure. So much so that if a person deprives himself for no reason of a pleasure of the world that is permitted to him, he's considered a sinner. The Talmud says a person that without any rhyme or reason holds himself back from a pleasure that God has provided him with, which is a permitted pleasure is a sinner. Why? Because it was intended there to be for your pleasure. If a person says, if I'm going to get involved in it, I'm going to have too much of it, it's going to take me away from my goal, and I'm going to become obsessed with it, so then it's counterproductive. And then to stay away from it and try to curb it makes the person a very holy person. And then the person is commended. But if the person has no reason to believe that this pleasure is going to hurt him in any way, but quite, quite to the contrary, it might make him feel better. It might make him feel more relaxed. or might make him feel stronger. 
and more at ease with himself, and he just for the sake of being anti-pleasure holds back. The Gemara says, Chayte, he's a sinner. Because he's working in the, in the philosophy of fragmentation, not in the philosophy of oneness. The philosophy of God's world is that everything's supposed to be one. And he's working in the direction, this has no place in God's world. So why the heck did God make it if it has no place in God's world? So you're saying that there are things that exist outside of, of God that have no, 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 have no connection to God. That's a sin. On a philosophical level, it's a sin. And on a real level, it's not going to get the person in any positive direction. So the attitude that you're supposed to have is that Judaism's platform is not an anti-pleasure platform. It's not. That is not the goal of Judaism. Judaism will say that if you get so drunk with pleasure that you forget the goal, then you have to watch, then you have to curb, or then you have to give a quality to the pleasure. But beyond that, Judaism is not anti-pleasure. I know the rest of the world believes that all religion is anti-pleasure, but that's really not so. And for the person that stands outside and hasn't tried it, and hasn't given himself the, the discipline to do it for a while, it's very hard to believe that it's not anti-pleasure. It's very hard. From the outside, it's very hard to believe. But if you look at it internally through experiencing and giving oneself the discipline, one comes to realize that it is. You know, it might not be in the mush, in the skin pleasure. It might not be the same, you know, skin pleasure. But in walking away, feeling like a mensch, feeling good about yourself, which after everything is said and done, isn't that the most important thing? feeling good about oneself, being able to live with oneself. I mean, after everything is said and done, that's a very critical aspect. Any more comments? I don't know how we got off on this, but anyway. This is this is not planned. I'm telling you, it's not planned. Okay. So in other words, if somebody doesn't it there, right, he's breaking his flow, is this what you're saying? Um, this feeling of flowing? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And that's why it's harder to get back? Yes, yes. Rav Hutna speaks uh, about the concept of how an Aveira extinguishes the light of a mitzvah. It doesn't cancel out the reward of the mitzvah, but the light of the mitzvah becomes dimmed. It can be rekindled, but it becomes dimmed. So he says, what's the mitzvah and what's the light of the mitzvah? The mitzvah is what the person did and the reward that he's supposed to get for it. What's the light of the mitzvah? The light of the mitzvah is the connection the sense of the connection, the delight of the connection. And when a person does an Avera, invariably he's done something to the connection that was there a moment before. Okay. Call it quits for this evening. I'm not duplicate. I have the master, but we can duplicate it here. Okay. Oh, next week is Shavuos. So there is no class next week, but the following week there will be a class.